So when I go into these in these settings, I really enjoy being the disruptive element. I come to disrupt your daily life. Let's get rid of your desks. Let's get rid of your chairs. Let's stand up. Let's do circles. Let's do these more enlivening activities. And usually what people get is a jolt of life, a jolt of energy. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it is all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. Your host is Peter Margaritas, the man whose name is pronounced like a cocktail, but spelled like an inflammation. Peter is the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of his business, The Accidental Accountant. Peter's goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 84. And today my guest is Antonio Ocampo-Guzman, who is an actor, director, and theater teacher originally from Bogota, Colombia. As an actor, he trained with Teatro Libra, and with a Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts. He received an MFA in directing as well as a graduate diploma in voice from York University in Toronto and has participated in over 50 productions in several countries. He is a designated Linklater Master Voice Teacher and is the author of two books in Spanish, and my Spanish is not that good, so I translated them into English, and those titles are The Liberation of the Natural Voice and The Linklater Method. He's Associate Professor of Theater at Northeastern University, where he teaches all levels of acting, improv, and voice. Before we get to the interview, I have a question for you. Would you like to build stronger business relationships and connect better with your clients, customers, and colleagues? If so, then consider purchasing my book, Improv is No Joke, Using Improvisation to Create Positive Results in Leadership and Life for $14.99. Here's a review from an Amazon customer, and they write, Yes, and he did a great job opening my eyes and mind to concepts. I'm an ex-accountant who also did a short-lived stint as a professional actor. When I looked at the book, I was curious what could Mr. Margaritas tell me about improv or accounting. Yes, and he did a great job in opening my eyes and mind to the concepts I had long forgotten about, i.e. listening to other people, being creative, and accepting positivity. His examples are real and grounded, and his use of humor is refreshing. I read the book cover to cover in one sitting because he kept me enthralled on his stories and explanations. I highly recommend his book if you're looking for some fresh new ideas to open your business processes, and even if you're not looking, you'll be pleasantly surprised by his experience and approach. Thank you very much, Mr. Amazon, Mr. or Mrs. Amazon customer. That was greatly appreciated. Now, obviously, the book can be purchased on Amazon, but if you'd like to have a personalized signed copy, go to my website, petermargaritas.com, and click on the Improv is No Joke Available Now graphic on the homepage to purchase. And by the way, the shipping is free. You can also purchase my audio book from the website for the same price of $14.99. A professional speaker's biggest challenge is following up with their audience to continue to provide value-added tools and techniques. 
This podcast is one way that I deliver those tools and techniques. The other way is through my social media postings on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Please feel free in connecting with me on one or all these social media platforms. And you can subscribe to my monthly newsletter by going to my website, once again, petermargaritas.com, and clicking the contact button on the top of the website. A quick update on my next book. I've completed 90% of the first draft and have begun the process of editing. My goal is to have the first draft 100% complete and with first two rounds of editing done by the end of January. My hope is to have the book published in the spring of 2018. I will let you know my status in future podcast episodes if I'm able to meet that goal of spring of 2018. Now, with that said, let's get to the interview with Antonio. Antonio, thank you for spending some time with me today on my podcast. I've been looking so forward to this interview. Oh, thanks, Peter. Me too, actually. Yeah, so um, we were introduced by a third party, uh, a gentleman who is part of the production team for this podcast, and I guess Ben had heard you on somebody else's podcast, I believe, and put us in contact together. Is that correct? Is my memory serve me correct? No, I think that he or you were interviewing a colleague of mine at Northeastern, the dean of the College of Computer Science, Carla Broadley, and she put us in touch. Oh, that's right. It was for him, yeah. Uh, see, my, my, my wife actually might be right. My memory's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> or you're improvising your memory, which is awesome. <laughs> which is awesome. So, well, can you, get, can you give the audience a, a, a little background uh, uh, of yourself and, and what, what you're currently doing now at Northeastern University? Of course. So I am an actor by training. I trained as an actor in Colombia. I'm from Bogota, Colombia, many, many years ago. And then I came to the States in 1993 to continue my training as an actor. And then I fell in love with directing and with teaching voice for actors. So I have this morphed identity in which I teach acting. I direct plays and operas. I teach improvisation. I teach voice and speech for actors. And at Northeastern, I'm an associate professor of theater in the theater department in the College of Arts, Media, and Design. And at Northeastern, I have developed a number of courses for students who are not studying theater, usually business students, computer science students, and you know, from different walks of life. Courses that use theater training to enhance what people, I think, rather inaccurately called soft skills. I don't particularly like the softness of this because I think they're actually quite hard, but skills in interpersonal communication. And so I have developed a bunch of techniques or approaches, if you want, to help people communicate better by using theater training, basically improvisation and voice and speech. And I remember having this conversation and... I, I had mentioned to you when I was at Ohio Dominican and I was university when I was teaching that I wanted to develop an improv course for the business school uh, for the same kind of what you're doing. And, and I said, man, I really love to be doing what you're doing. Um, and that, that I may get back to that someday and, and do that. Maybe when, when I retire, um, and your comment about soft skills, what I've been saying to my audiences is they may call them soft skills, but you would agree with this. They're pretty hard to master. And that seems to resonate well with them. They seem to uh, accept that and go, yeah, you're right. They are pretty well, hard. What's interesting to me is that I don't think they're hard to master. They are challenging to 
comprehend and to practice. I think they're actually quite simple, but it is complicated to understand them and to practice them. But they're simple because they are part of our of our human design in terms of when we were kids, we used these same techniques of being playful, being attentive, paying attention outwardly in order for us to understand the world. But as we grow up, we lose that ability and then it becomes complicated to master them. But they're very, very simple things in essence. Why do we lose that ability? I think because society doesn't function well when people are completely expressive. Because society puts all these bizarre demands on us to, to quote-unquote, get along but not expressing ourselves because there are so many expectations of what, quote-unquote, success looks like in our society that is based most on consumerism rather than on communication. And so most people, in my estimation, get afraid. They become really, really afraid, afraid of themselves, afraid, afraid of each other, afraid of playing, afraid of making mistakes afraid of failing, and then they lose these abilities. And then we bring them back through playfulness in theater, and they, they rediscover a childlike sense of innocence, a childlike sense of playfulness, a childlike sense of willingness, and a childlike sense of generosity, which makes life much easier. It's an interesting analogy, and, and I like that analogy. Uh, but you said one word there, that fear. We're fearful of saying, we're fearful of making a mistake. We're fearful of some repercussions. And what I've learned through my time spending in and doing improvisation and improv, doing improv, it, it helps you like lean into that fear. It, it helps you, as a gentleman who I interviewed not too long ago, Jay Suko, who was trained in Second City uh, in, in Chicago, he, he, he put it this way, he goes, improvisers follow that fear. Of course, because, you know, there is, a, I think, a, a misconception that courage is the absence of fear. And I believe that courage is the recognition of fear and my willingness to go forward anyway. So I embrace the fear. I lean into it, to use your word, but I embrace it. I love being afraid. Nothing's going to happen. What's the worst thing that can happen? That you flop? <laughs> that nobody hires you ever again? <laughs> no, nobody dies for being a bad actor. No, it, it feels like it, and it's terrible when you don't get hired again, but nobody dies from it. You know what I mean? So it's a way of playfully bring back the notion that the only way to succeed is if you're willing to fail. The input that I, that I practice comes more from the world of clowning. And in the world of clowning, the clown is always looking for a failure, because what makes people laugh is the failure. And once the clown achieves the quote-unquote success of failing, the clown has to reinvent the next failure. So you're always looking for a way to fail, and to fail more gloriously, and to fail more completely. Therefore, you become really good friends with your fear. Interesting. When you're talking about clowning, is, is that like from a comedic perspective? Well, yes, but the purpose is not it's, it's a paradox. The purpose is not to be funny. The purpose is to fail. There's nothing less funny than somebody who's trying to be funny. So this clowning is, you know, the Western tradition that started with the Greeks and the Romans and then developed through the Middle Ages into Commedia dell'arte in Italy and then throughout Europe. And 
ended up in the western part of Europe, especially in England and France through Moliere and through Shakespeare for sure, uh, and then develops into Punch and Judy and ends up in Monty Pythons, basically. <laughs> okay. This, this notion of buffoons mm-hmm. embracing the absurdity of life being able to speak truth to power. I mean, every king has a fool, right? That speaks right. the truth to power. Uh, but the purpose of it is not to be funny. The purpose of it is to live and fail. And so that's what that's what part of my training is, is in, in that kind of clowning. Not necessarily in the, in the more Americanized understanding of improv and stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, they, they share a lot of, of similarities. Certainly the notion of, I do not know what's going to happen next. Which, by the way, is exactly what acting is about. In actor training, I use improv and clowning as a very big pillar of actor training. The actor plays a very interesting game, which is, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know what I'm going to say next. I don't know what I'm going to hear next. The actor has read the play, rehearsed the play, and knows exactly what's going to happen next. But the quote-unquote character has no idea that they're in a play has no idea that they're in a scene, has no idea that somebody's going to enter through the door. So you have to constantly invent the next moment. And the way you do that is by not knowing what's going to happen next. Now, our society, seems to me, has been based on the notion of you need to know what's going to happen next. You need to control what's going to happen next. You need to succeed. And success comes from those of people who control the next moment. And therefore, there's no surprises. Therefore, there's no sheer joy of discovery. And what improv gives us is exactly that. I play, I don't know what's going to happen next. Therefore, I'm looking for a surprise. I'm looking for a failure. And then when it happens, I get creative. And that creativity, which is childlike, gives me joy. Yes. And that was awesome. Uh, I, 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 I've never heard it described in that manner before, but I, I, I totally agree with, with, with that analogy. And, and, and as you are, as we're, we're, we're waiting, we don't, that, that we don't know in order to be successful, we have to be, we have to be excellent listeners. Would you agree? Of course. Of course. I mean, that's, that's the essence of being an actor. And I think it's the essence of being a communicative and expressive human being. It's not about speaking, it's about listening. It's all about listening. And in improv, the listening happens not necessarily through our ears, obviously. It happens through all of our senses. So part of the the joy of training actors and, and, and doing this kind of work in other settings is inviting people to pay attention. We don't pay attention. Most people are, you know, looking down at their phones, texting, but their eyes are not open, their ears are not open, you know, I'm sure you have this experience as well when you when you do improv with other people, that there's a collective sense of joy, a collective sense of being present. You know, we talk a lot about presence in the communications world. Present has the same word as gift. It is a gift of your presence mm-hmm. when you experience joy in front of another human being in an interaction that is generous and warm-hearted. How else can you create with another person? How else can you work in a High impact team. If you're not going to experience any any joy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm curious. Did you go to the business and, and computer science department and say, "Hey, I got this great idea," uh, or did they come to you? It was a sort of mixture. So 
I think it was about four or five years ago that I was asked to develop an improv course for non-majors. And the first people that we marketed to was the business school because improv and business have become very popular for obvious reasons Mm -hmm. over the last 10 years or so. And so the class filled up within 10 minutes of registration. <laughs> and it, was, it, was, it, was a great, it was a great joy on one level, and it was really, really awful on another level. Because what happened was that it filled up with seniors who had one more elective class to take before they graduated. All, most of them who were men, most of them who thought that they were incredibly funny, and they were not, that it was vulgar, which um, <laughs> is not funny. Um, so it was a bit of, of a learning curve for me, for sure. Actually, to be honest, I don't remember which one came first because I also developed a, a voice and speech class for non-majors. In, in terms of voice and speech, I teach basically the same idea, how to be eloquent, how to be present in your speaking, in your voice with resonance, with precision of articulation as a gift to the person that you're speaking with. So I can remember if, if we developed the, the professional voice class first or the, the improv class first, but they happen more, more or less time. But then when Carla became dean of the College of Computer Science, I met her. We served on a committee together and immediately had a rapport. And she asked about what I taught. And I told her and she said, "Will you develop a course for our students. And I did. So we developed this course. Uh, again, it was a pilot program. It had a lot of hiccups at the beginning, but now it is flowing. And now every single undergraduate student who is doing a major in computer and information sciences at Northeastern takes a theater class that uses improv and voice and speech work to develop their, their ability to communicate more eloquently. Well, I know the commute for me from Columbus to Boston would be kind of tough because I really want to take your course. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I, 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 I teach these courses because I still teach courses for the regular theater majors. So we have a, a, another group of, of colleagues of mine who we rotate so that different students get different tastes of things because, you know, there's more ways than just one in how to teach improv and how to teach voice and speech, obviously. So y- your students, they're coming in, they see the word improv. It, and, you know, they read the course description, but they, in their mind, they're, they're thinking of the word improv and they're thinking of second city and they're thinking of comedy. Yeah. How long does it take until they get that aha moment that this is much more than being funny? This is actually a real effective communication tool that I can actually apply today and have an immediate, immediate effect on the way I communicate. I think for some of them, it happens in the first class, and for some of them, it never happens. <laughs> and all stops in between, you know. And it's interesting, there are a lot of international students as well, and a lot of students that struggle with finding an ability to, to communicate in English. And, and so a lot of academic advisors send these students to our courses in order to help them, which, of course, they do help them, but they're not designed as a way to enhance your communication in, in your second or third or even fourth language. So some students get it from the get-go that this class is about playfulness and that there is absolutely no way that they can do it right. And they embrace it. A lot of it has to do with the chemistry of the class. Sometimes I get students who, you know, a group of people who that really coalesce really quickly and it's fun and engaging and we celebrate every single failure that we make. And occasionally I get groups of students who are a bit more uptight and a, and a bit more 
resistant to exploration. A lot of our students, and I'm sure that this is across the board throughout the country and even probably the world, a lot of students just want to be told what to do, how to do it in order to get a great grade and move on with their lives. They're not interested in explorations. They're interested in being good at the course. And this kind of work doesn't align with that. You cannot execute. You cannot be a good improviser. You improvise. There's no, there's, you see the paradox? There's, there's no way of knowing if you're better than another person in improvisation. You just do it and see what happens. And you explore it. And then you give it another try. And so you just described the word risk. And a lot of people don't like to take on any risk. Then, as I say, open a bakery. <laughs> if you want comfort, open a bakery. Stay away from the world of performance. Stay away from the world of theater. There's nothing comfortable about it. I mean, it doesn't need to. The easiest way to make yourself boring is by attempting to be comfortable. You're only alive and compelling when there is a disruption. The, the status quo only leads or only perpetrates injustices and inequalities. You have to disrupt them. And improv, in a sense, it's all about disruption. It's all about disruption. So you're, 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 the, the students who are in the business school and they're taking this, do, do they, at the end of the, those who get it, like I said, some some probably never get it, but those who get it, do they do they really understand that the, the the magnitude or the impact that they can have in the business world by by embracing these principles and, and become an effective uh, uh, or improviser in the workplace? Well, I I don't know. I mean that is, that is my wishful thinking. I hope they do. Do you know that the book called The Inner Game of Tennis? Uh, no. I've never. It's a fascinating book about playing tennis. It's by a man called Timothy Galway, G A L L W E Y, Timothy Galway. And it's a book that's about playing tennis. But I always give this book to students to read as a way to contextualize what we have done in class. And it's about being present in your game, being fully present so that. What Alcoholic Anonymous calls these stinking thinking, all the stupid judgmental voices in our heads that don't help us. When you're improvising, when you're playing tennis, you, there's no room for that. Because you have to take the risk of creating something in, in a failure, in a fall. And therefore, you get some joy. So my hope is that by the, the class and by reading this book, the students are able to articulate some of the things that might be helpful for them in the future, in their professional future. Whether or not they, they get there, I don't know. You know, it's my wishful thinking that it that it does. I, I think that I think the challenge runs, especially when, you know, we're coming up with ideas. I, I learned something recently, well a few years ago, uh, about being creative and and using improv and being creative. We've got we've got our we've got our safe ideas, and then we got over here to the to the right our crazy ideas, our really you know just bonkers kind of crazy idea. And when I when I'm working with people about how to become more creative, I go, "Give me your craziest idea," because what happens then is it, nobody's going to judge you. However, we can take that crazy. I've got more bandwidth to come up with a solution versus you just give me these little bitty steps away from that safe idea. I don't have that bandwidth. 
And, and this came true in a, in a session I was doing where we were talking about how to increase profitability in a company. And I said, I want crazy ideas. And this one guy said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Why don't we kill all of our competition salespeople? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> that, that's crazy. And, and and we all laughed, and I panicked a little bit because I wasn't expecting that. But then I said, well, let's take murder off the table for one. And, and instead of killing them, why don't we go out and poach them? <laughs> why don't we give them a $30,000 increase in salary and a bonus? Now, I don't know if we would have ever gotten to that point if that gentleman didn't didn't literally take me serious and say, I'm going to give you the craziest idea I got. You know, it made me think that one of the ways that I teach clowning is by exploring master-servant relationships. So we roll up newspapers and we hit each other with the newspapers. The person who has the roll-up newspaper or a baton made out of roll-up newspaper is the master. And the person who doesn't have it is a servant. And the servant has to do whatever the master asks him to do, of course, within reason. But the master can hit them and can kill them. And of course, if you kill your servant, then you have nobody to serve you. So you, the magic wand of the newspaper can also resuscitate the servant. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's a hysterical exploration of status or how we embody status, how we use status, but also how to, quote unquote, be crazy. And the funny thing is that we tend to use that word crazy or weird as a pejorative insult. Right. Where it's actually quite a compliment. Yes, I agree with that. It is quite Meaning a compliment. Meaning that it's, 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 it's what used to be called thinking outside the box. <laughs> you know, <laughs> being a revolutionary, being a visionary, whatever it is. It's what nowadays we call weird or crazy. And it goes back to this idea of fear. A lot of kids are afraid of being different, are afraid of being unique, are afraid of being, quote-unquote, creative. So they just go to the lowest common denominator and become just like everybody else. Now, what I find fascinating is when I do this kind of work with adults in corporations and in the corporate world, because 99% of the time what happens is that these adults who are, you know, very high power, very well paid executives of very big corporations across the world, they turn into kids and, and they enjoy themselves and they let go of all their own expectations of what success looks like and they become quote unquote crazy. And something as outrageous as let's kill the competition comes up. And yeah, we laugh with it. We know we cannot do that, but killing can be a metaphor for, as you say, poaching them or doing something else, you know? But it is that playfulness that is available that we all have in ourselves, but we seldom allow it in our daily life and certainly not in a professional life. So when I go into these, in these settings, I really enjoy being the disruptive element. I come to disrupt your daily life. Let's get rid of your desks. Let's get rid of your chairs. Let's stand up. Let's do circles. Let's do um, these more enlivening activities. And usually what people get is a jolt of life, a jolt of energy. How do you get them comfortable? How do you? I don't. Well, I'm, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. How do you get them to buy into this concept? Because if, if I, I find that some individuals will, will not be playful. It's just they, 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 they won't let themselves go. 
And, and the other challenge I've seen it, it, with, this, with with professionals is who's the, who's the highest ranking person in the room? Who's the senior vice president? Who's the 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 senior person? And everybody else is watching to see what that person does. Sure. In order to see if it's safe. Right. I attempt to practice what I preach, meaning that I have to be even more playful. I have to be even more present. And secondly, I establish from the get-go that this is going to be playful. So for example, I never start with people sitting down. We always start in a circle, standing up and playing a game, even if it's just passing a ball around. You know, mm -hmm. so that from the get go, it establishes that there is no hierarchy here, that we're all playing the game together, that we'll all fail at it at some point or other, and that we can continue the game even after the failure happens. There's a number of, of games that I play that come, you know, from the world of improv, from the Prime of Clown, from Viola Spolin, from Augusto Boal, games that engage people immediately. And yes, sometimes it's more successful than others. For sure. There's occasion, there's the very resistant person that contributes nothing and just observes from the, from the sidelines. So I just let that be. So can you name some of these games? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. What, no. What... <laughs> Absolutely not. They're my games. <laughs> oh, oh, no, wait a minute. You said you got them from, from the world of improv, from Viola Spolin. <laughs> yep. They come through me, like what I teach. I mean, I can hear the names of it, but they will make me much sense to you. I mean, for example, I I play a game called the U game. The U, U. The, the U Yeah. Game. So the, the U game, the whole circle of people create a sequence with the word U, and then we change positions in the circle, but the sequence has to remain the same. I always send it to the same person, and I always get back from the same person. So no matter what happens in the room, that sequence never changes. And then we add other sequences, like the, the place of our birth or our favorite food or whatever they may be. And then we have to play those sequences simultaneously. So these games are about mental agility. Right. Being, you know, present, listening, and attempting to keep many balls in the air. So, <laughs> so that's one game that usually works really well as a beginning game. I do sometimes use uh, little tennis balls or little hacky balls as well, yeah. to get people's bodies engaged in sending and receiving. I play another common name called the yes game, which is about changing position within a circle by making eye contact with the person whose space you want to take, and they say yes mm. and, which is of course the, the essence of improvisation, right? Saying yes and. Right, right. I, I have, now I've played that one before. I, that one, right. uh, yeah. And, you know, there's variations of that game. You can do it just with yes or yes with the and. Or I also use a lot of gibberish in my work because <laughs> gibberish is a great way of disconnecting the literal sense of words and investing in your desire to be understood. So, for example, when we do all the clowning exercises, we mostly do it in gibberish. It frees up something in our brain. There's a, I, I can't remember his name, um, Anhar, uh, he's a member of the National Speakers Association. I attended one of his improv sessions, and he was teaching us, in practicing for our presentation, get rid of the words and use gibberish, and throw yourself into that, give it the, 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 the energy that it deserves. And, and it was a really interesting, uh, and I, I, as you said, Jim, I haven't done that in a while. I, I, I got to get back to it. That was, that was a lot of fun, and it helps. 
Interessant ist, dass er gestartet hat in der Stuhl Achinisua und der gestartet ist in der Kreuzerpartei. Bekommt er gestartet in der Gestuhlpala in der Post Ratsuga-Sacha. Was du? Und der Pestu. That's gibberish. You, you threw me. For a moment, for a moment, I thought we had a really bad connection. I'm, I'm like, what the? the, the a lot like, of people think that gibberish is blah, 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 blah. That's not no. gibberish. There's no thought behind it. Right. So we, we do a couple of prepping exercises to get the gibberish flowing because it's not, for some people, it's very easy and for some people, it's very, very difficult. But ideally, gibberish has nouns, verbs, adjectives, Insults, insults, by the way, are a great way to practice gibberish. So we, sometimes in the first day of class, we invent an insult. For example, pashteka. Ah. Okay. We make a mistake, we go, pashteka. And it has some, some energy. <laughs> But gibberish is, I, this is something that I would like at some point to investigate with some more intelligent people about how the brain, brain and language works. But I think that's something really compelling about gibberish. And I use it a lot in improv and also in acting training and even rehearsals. Interesting. I, 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 and I, when we talked last month, I believe, uh, I, I did say that I, I'd love to just come up and sit in the class and just watch you and, and, and watch your class and see how it operates because I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I, 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 like I said, I wouldn't roll. Well, the, the, the invitation is open, of course, Peter, but I also want to let you know that some of the students, I mean, and this happens in the classes at Northeastern, but it also happens when I work professionally. Occasionally, you will see people looking at me as if I had three heads <laughs> because I'm not a very typical professor. You know, I dress in sweatpants. I, we come into a room that there are no desks. Computers are not welcomed. Cell phones are not welcomed. So some kids don't know what to make of this sometimes, you know, people start calling me professor. And I said, I don't respond to that name. My name is Antonio, not professor. Uh, it's, it's a very different kind of pedagogy. So for some kids that is exciting and they totally embrace it. And for other kids, it is way too threatening, way too weird. And they retract. And occasionally I'm able to bring them forth and occasionally I'm not. And those are my failures. Pashteka. <laughs> Pashteka. <laughs> I can't wait till my wife gets home. <laughs> Pashteka. You know, it's weird, but it, insults are so useful to release energy. Yeah. And you can invent them. You don't have to use the cursing words. You can just invent. I mean, talk about creativity. When you're, when you're speaking in gibberish, you're creating a whole different language. Yes, but it's a language that comes with a desire to be understood. Sometimes I think that the problem is that we take it for granted that people are going to understand us, especially if we're using a common language. I, I, I do some work for corporations that are multinational, so they use English as the common language, but most of the people use English as the second or third or even fourth language, like myself. You know, mm -hmm. I hope it's clear that English is not my first language. <laughs> uh, And, and there's something about using gibberish that allows people to invest in the desire to be understood beyond the literal sense of the words. And so to your common language, you have something to invest. This, is, this is, comes from the world of voice and speech that I teach. I, I, I was trained by a woman called Kristen Linklater, 
and her methodology is called Freeing the Natural Voice. And the premise of it, which is, goes completely hand in hand with improv and with clowning, is that we have naturally a, a voice that is endowed with three to four octaves of sound that is able to communicate clearly whatever impulse of thought and feeling we have to our human being. But as we're socialized, we lose that ability. And so therefore, if you want to bring it back, you need to train it. And the way that we do that is by understanding the physical habits that prevent us from having what amount of energy in the body, which usually is physical tension, muscular effort. So we learn how to release our breathing muscles, how to release our jaw muscles, our tongue muscles, and how to re-recognize the sensation of resonance in our bones in the pursuit of clear, eloquent communication with another human being. And so using gibberish, or using insults, for example, in the setting of improvisation, it's a great way to reconnect with that free, natural expression. Interesting. So this is, I have to admit, this is one of those interviews that I get caught up into it. And then when it comes time, there's this big pause. I'm like, I get to get present again. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm so absorbed into this conversation because of the, 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 the approach that you use and your philosophy and the way you describe things are, are so new to me. Uh, in being a student of improv for over 20 some odd years, I've never, I haven't heard things put in this manner, but I, I understand them and I'm processing them. No, I said that because I come from the world of, of acting and actor training, a lot of the work that I do with improv has to do with what I feel in my physical body and with my breath. I mean, for example, when you are creating, embracing, or as you said, leaning into your fear, you better release your breath. Right. Because if you don't release your breath, you're going to faint. Right. And most of us, when we are afraid, what we tend to do is tense our muscles so that our nervous system does not feel the nerves, the electricity in the nerves. The voice and speech training that I teach has to do with release your muscles so that you can feel the electricity of your nerves. Or translated into other terms, be very nervous. Nerves are incredibly useful. Never attempt to get rid of your nerves. Use them. Use your nerves. Use the electricity that you feel in your body. So it becomes a physical experience, not just an intellectual, oh, it's fun to improvise. I, I wholeheartedly agree about nerves. I, 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 I've, learned, I've learned over the years how to take those butterflies and instead of them flying all over my stomach in different directions, how to put them in one direction and use that as energy versus um, <laughs> versus being nervous. And, and I, I I tell when I, when I'm teaching you know um, speaking and, and, and presentation skills, I, I tell my class I said if I ever walk in and I am not nervous, it is going to be the worst class ever. It's going to be boring. Uh, it is, but the, the the nerves do give you energy, and 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 I, I that I love. Well, nerves are energy. That's how nerves work with energy. But people, but people when they feel nervous. To your point, they kind of they, they they kind of close down. And, and, exactly because people think that nerves is a manifestation of weakness rather than a manifestation of strength. And they and they and we were talking about breath, and and they stop. They become shallow breathers. Of course, and if you are tensing your breathing muscles, you're probably tensing your jaw and your tongue, so your voice has no place to resonate, and therefore you have to tense everything else, and then you cannot articulate, and nobody hears anything that you said, or nobody, and then. 
what communication is that? Uh, that that sounds a little bit like gibberish to me, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And, and the other thing that happens w w when they do that is they're not getting enough oxygen to the brain. And the likelihood that they're going to forget what they were talking about uh, increases dramatically. And I always tell them that if you forget what you're going to, what you were going to say, don't panic. Don't freak out. Just take a big, deep breath. And it'll probably come right back to you. Well, I would argue a point. You don't have to take a breath. Because your body will breathe whether you want it or not. <laughs> okay. Is that you release your breath. The breath that you've been holding tightly with your muscles, let that one go so that new breath can come in and then you can say your words. Taking a breath tenses, for most people, the active verbal order to take a breath tenses their body rather than relaxes the body. Most people will suck their breath in through their nostrils and tense the front of their body. Rather than release your breath from the entirety of your body and allow new breath to come in, that new breath will bring another impulse, more oxygen to your brain, and will help you clarify what you have to say, what you want to say. I stand, but I stand it's correct. A minor point. I, but I, no, <laughs> it's a little minor point, Just, but to me, it actually makes a huge difference. Yeah. The notion of taking a breath, which sounds like an order, like yet another thing that you have to do. You have to take a breath versus. Just let it go. Release it. So we use the word release is the basis of what we do in, in link letter voice work, releasing the breath. But the word release, I love because it means real ease. Make it easy. Make it easy. Let go of your breath. Allow new breath to replenish. And then speak. I'm 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 taking that one in. I'm I'm going to give you all the credit when I when I'm working with folks and when I say don't take a breath, release the breath, and I'm going to <laughs> give this. And then I'm going to give full credit to you because, like I said, I do stand corrected, but I I I, I understand. I, I that's that's cool. I mean, I feel like I'm in class. Uh, <laughs> I, I've always said, and I've had I've had very little tr uh, training. Uh, there's an actor in New York that I've I've done I've. I've He's done some coaching with me uh, a couple of times. And I think I was, I was mentioning to you the last time we talked, I, I really do, outside of my time doing improv, outside of my time you know, doing, doing a little bit of stand-up comedy, outside of some uh, Second City workshops, I really want to take some acting lessons and voice lessons because it does help when you are in front of an audience, no matter what type of delivery or what type of information you're exchanging. It, it, it does help connect better with that audience member for sure because audiences read our physical presence first right. they, they react to our presence to our breathing to our physical energy first i mean that's that's what we do as humans we're social animals so the first thing that they that people do they don't pay attention to what we say they pay attention to what how we enter the room the energy that we have in our body the energy that we have in our voice how we're breathing and then some people call that charisma but it's something that we naturally do. We read other people all the time. Right. I, I, I interviewed a guy recently, uh, Colin Blaylock, and he talks a lot about reading body language because yeah. th those nonverbal, we learn more about the, from the person by reading their nonverbals than we do by hearing the words that come out of their mouth. Well, especially when you're pre doing presentation skills and people are more invested in their freaking PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> you know, I think PowerPoint is the death of communication. 
you know, send me, send me the, the document, I'll read it, and then we can have a conversation. But don't use the time that you and I have together for you to point at something that I can look at the screen. How silly is that? I, I tend to say that, you know, well, I, I'm, I'm a, we, we've, we, we've overused PowerPoint. We use it as a crutch. We use it as a script where it can really be more of a visual aid in connecting with that audience. And I look back at some of the early stuff that I used to do and I cringe. I almost get violent, <laughs> I almost get violently sick. I'm like, oh my God, I was that guy. <laughs> well, that's lovely. I mean, look, that, that, that means that you have been creating over the last X number of years. If you were the same person now that you were back then, you would not be creative. You would have created nothing. You have just perpetrated the status quo, which is boring and not creative. And, and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I'd probably w- wait, working in a restaurant or something. There you go. But yeah, it's that that creative aspect. But no, I I just I, you know one idea, and if there's a picture that can correspond with it that'll help with the brain, then, then yeah. And then let's have a conversation because really, I I look at a presentation should really be a conversation with your audience no matter the size. Do the way am I asking a very personal question? Sure, go ahead. Do you have kids? I have a son, 17 years old. I have one, almost five. I think that if it weren't for improv and all this stuff, I, I don't know how I would parent. <laughs> You're exactly right. And I even, when I even, audience, I said, we got a bunch of improvisers. How many of you have kids? And all their hands go up. And I said, you've improvised every day with that child, don't you? They go, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. There's no manner. There's, you know, talk about being creative and, and dealing with, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know what he's going to say next. I don't know what crazy thing he's going to come from school with, you know. And I just have to be attentive, pay attention, and be creative. And breathe. And breathe. You know, when we talk about kids. Improvisation and improv really helped me better connect with my son. Uh, I'll share the story. I um, I, I was raised by a a man, uh, my dad, who could have been in he could have been in the Olympics, and he could be an eight gold medal winner for yelling. He was an excellent (laughs) yeller. He was he was a professional. So I was trained by a professional, and I at. He was, I don't know, 14 years old, and I came up to me one day and says, Daddy, you're yelling at me all the time. Like, no, I'm not. Oh, crap, I am. <laughs> and I sat there and was thinking back through these conversations. No, you can't do that. You're going to do it. Why? This is my house. And I'm like, no wonder we were at each other's throats. And after that, since he made me aware of it, I went, okay. And I used yes and uh, and that, or the yes and philosophy, having a conversation with them. And about three months later, he comes up to me and says, Daddy, you're not yelling at me anymore. Don't you love me? <laughs> Man. I mean, it's funny and sad at the same time, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it's when you're talking about r- relaxing and, and, and playfulness, and, and I really, and, and from that point, I've become a much better quote unquote improviser with him and better connected with him. And then earlier this year, he was diagnosed as a type one diabetic, which, which I am as well. And you want to talk about using improv skills, but he's also has his dad's humor. Cause when the, when the doctor told him that he was a diabetic, he didn't even blink. He just turned to me and said, Hey, thanks dad. 
Peter, I I am so sorry, but I need to um, go to a production meeting for the next project that I'm directing. Oh, no worries. I, I appreciate you taking time. I, I my I, pleasure. I, I think you can tell. I think you can tell that I'm I'm just fascinated. I I, I love the, the the concepts. I love the way you've described things. I, I greatly appreciate you taking time. I know our paths will cross soon, uh, somehow. And if, if I can ever help you with anything, please do not has do not hesitate to contact me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. I would like to thank Antonio again for sharing his knowledge and thoughts on ways that improv can be applied in today's business world. And I'm looking forward to following up with him in 2018 so we can finish our conversation. In episode 85, I interview Merle Heckman, who's the manager of organizational development at Regal Power Transmission Solutions in Northern Kentucky. Now, Merle understands the power of storytelling because his doctoral dissertation is titled Intentional Storytelling, the Potential Tool for Retention and Application in Business. I thank you again for listening, and always remember to use the principles of improvisation to help you better connect and communicate with those in your organization and within your life. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.